0: Father, I pray now that the same Holy Spirit that filled Zechariah and released his undeserving tongue would fill me and us so that this magnificent salvation, which he opened by prophecy, would be plain and precious to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember back in verse 6 of chapter 1, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says, were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So they were too old to have a baby, and she was barren, and they were blameless. That is, God held nothing against them. So barren, blameless, old, perfect couple (laughs) to have John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is going to be great, but not as great as Jesus. And that's the point of these two chapters. Verse 15, chapter 1, he will be great before the Lord. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. Jesus will be the Lord. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 11. So John's going to be a great man. Matthew 1, 11. Among those, this is Jesus talking. Among those born of women has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." You a Christian? Yes. Then you're greater than John the Baptist. And he was very great. He was part of the old order, right? the waiting order, the wanting, the longing, the hoping, wondering when will Messiah come, and he walked right up to the edge of the new order. He walked right up to the edge of the kingdom of God that was being brought by Jesus, this new glorious way of salvation. He walks right up to the edge. He looks over, he points the way, and he wasn't in it. He died. It is a greater thing to be an absolute nobody in the kingdom of heaven than to be the greatest prophet who ever was. So John is born of a barren womb of an old woman through the seed of an old man, and Jesus is born in a virgin womb of a young woman through the seed of God. The point of these two chapters is, John is great, and he's like nothing compared to Jesus. That's the point. Super greatness replacing greatness. John said, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He must increase, I must decrease, he said. That's the point of these chapters. Gabriel comes to Zechariah in verse 13, tells Elizabeth, tells Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. You shall call his name John. Johannes, transliterated from the Hebrew Yochanan, Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. Name him that. Indeed, he is, as we're about to see, right in the life of Zechariah. So Zechariah responds to Gabriel in verse 18 of chapter 1, a response that he's going to very much regret. How shall I know this? Now, that question is not the same as Mary's question. Mary's question was, how can this be? Mary was asking for understanding. How can a virgin have a baby? Not, will she have a baby? And Zechariah was saying, I need more evidence to know that I should trust Gabriel. That's a bad idea. And here's the response of Gabriel in verse 19. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you good news. And behold, you're going to be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. He calls it unbelief which will be fulfilled in their time." Which brings us to our text. This is the time, verse 57, is the time. Verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. The relatives all gather round, and they're about to name him, what? Zechariah. His father's name, it's what you do. And in verse 60, Elizabeth says, No. His name is John. They're quite perplexed about this and they turn to Zechariah. And you can tell by the fact that they're using gestures that he's deaf, not just dumb. Deaf and dumb go together. The angel struck him deaf and dumb. He can't hear, he can't talk. He can't hear. She says, he's not going to have your name. And he asks for a tablet. And on that tablet, he writes, his name is John. In other words, this baby's identity will not be owing And this baby's destiny will not be owing to human parentage. It will be opening and owing to divine purposes. God is gracious. The moment Zechariah obeys God, his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's called a prophecy, verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And we get to listen. We get to listen to the Word of God coming out of this disobedient, reclaimed prophet. There are two parts to the prophecy. You know, listen carefully. We're going we're gonna to take this prophecy really seriously. We're going to deal with every single part of it, and it's a lot. There are two parts to it, right? It's two two halves to it. Verses 68 to 75, part one. Verses 76 to 79, part two. Let's take those one at a time to get first the overview. Part one, verses 68 to 75, describes a redemption, brought about through a horn of salvation. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, past tense, because it's as good as done, even though it'll take 30 years to do it. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation For us in the house of his servant David. And we know that Luke wants us to see the horn of salvation as Jesus because of that phrase, the house of David. Here's verse 32. The Lord God will give to him, to Jesus, Mary's child, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the horn of salvation in the house of David is Jesus, verse 69. Now, what kind of horn is that? Horn in English is an ambiguous word, right? We get two kinds of horn. There's the horn you can blow, a trumpet, and there's a horn on an oxen. And it's really long and big. I mean, go to the state fair sometime and look at these giant oxen. I never dreamed they could be so big. His back is taller than my head. These horns are very dangerous. You do not want to tangle with... An oxen who has horns six feet across, 12 feet across. That's the kind of horn we're talking about here. It's always translated that way. It's the horn of Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's Jesus, that's God, that's power. So the horn of salvation, the mighty power, the saving power of God is going to work a redemption. That's the first part of the prophecy. We'll come back to the details. Second part of the prophecy, verses 76, or 70 to 70, let's see, from verses Starts in verse 76, goes to 79. You child, we're at verse 76, you child. So now you see he's turning from the horn of salvation, Jesus, to the John the Baptist, right? And you child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Going to lead... The way to Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people. And then the rest of verses 77 to 79 describes that salvation. So here's the the big picture. There are two halves to Zechariah's spirit-given prophecy, 68 to 75, the work of redemption wrought by the horn of salvation. And 76 to 79, the salvation from the perspective of John's preparation for it. It's the same salvation from two angles. And the point is that Jesus is greater than John, and Luke shows it, John is the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is far, far greater the power of the Most High, the embodiment of the Most High. One is pointing to salvation, the other is accomplishing salvation, and that's what we're supposed to see. So what would be helpful to do here? So I'm preparing this for you. And me and I thought, I think what would be helpful to do at this point is to step back and gather all the particular realities, particular aspects of salvation in part one, and the particular aspects of salvation in part two, and then see if we can weave them together into a composite view of our salvation. Christmas is about. So that's what we're going to try to do. Now, before I do it, clarification. Redemption in verse 68. The God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. Now, it's true. Zechariah was a Jew. And when he said, he's going to redeem us, he meant, Messiah is coming to redeem the Jewish people, save them from their enemies, including the Romans. That's what he had in his mind, at least that's true. And we could show from the New Testament that these realities promised to Israel are yet to be fulfilled for the people of Israel. And they will be fulfilled for the people of Israel. When the hardness is taken away and the veil is taken off of the Jewish nation, and may it come soon, more people in the Jewish Nation are turning to Jesus today than ever before, and you should pray for it regularly. God lift the veil, God take away the blindness. May they see Jesus as their Messiah. May you see Jesus as your Messiah. It's gonna happen. There will be a lifting of the veil, there will be a turning of Israel, and until that day, here's the amazing thing God, in His great mercy, has spilled over the banks of his chosen people, Israel, into the nations, and you sit there, almost all of you Gentiles, totally undeserving to be part of the covenant of Abraham, and you are in it. You are beneficiaries of the promise made to Abraham You have been grafted in like a wild olive shoot into the tree, and all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. So this morning, I have zero hesitancy to look out on, what, 98% Gentiles and say, it's yours. This prophecy right here, through the Jewish prophet Zechariah, concerning Israel, is yours. All the promises are yes, in Messiah Jesus. And that's where you are, aren't you? God, I pray so. And if you're not in Jesus, this is not yours. It could be. We've been praying like crazy that you would come in. The door's open, the arms are wide. You'll hear that. Okay, this is yours, so listen carefully. What are the particular realities in the first half of Zechariah's prophecy? Verses 68 to 75. You can count them in different ways. I count six. Number one, verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's number one, the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ. Number two, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So number two, rescue from our enemies. Three, verse 72, to show mercy promise to our fathers. The third reality is the mercy of God. 4 verse 72 in the middle of the verse to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father abraham the fourth reality is the covenant keeping work of god he keeps his word he fulfills his covenants number 5 verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Fifth reality, fearless, anxiety-free service of God. Number six, verse 75. In holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. So the final stage of salvation in this... Half of the prophecy is you are destined to be holy and righteous, happily, freely serving God forever and ever. Now we go to the second half. This is verses 76 to 79, as I count the realities, the aspects of salvation. Here, I see five. One of them, only one, is the same as one in the first half. See if you spot it. Number one, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's number one, forgiveness of sins. Number two, verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, because of the tender mercy of our God, so the second reality is God's mercy That's the one that overlaps, and the only one. And that's important. We'll come back to it. God's mercy, number 3 and 4 in verses 78, middle of verse 78 and 79, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, those are two effects that I see of this light, sunrise, the rising of, of the horn and Christ and the new age of salvation. One, light replaces darkness. Two, life replaces death. Those who sit in darkness will no longer sit in darkness, and those who are, in the sh- are overshadowed by death will no longer be overshadowed by death. So the third reality in the second half of this prophecy is freedom from darkness, and the, s- the fourth is deliverance from death. And finally, number five, verse 79, middle of the verse, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace is number five. All conflict removed and the full flourishing of the people of God experienced. So, six aspects, dimensions, realities of salvation in the first part of the prophecy, five, In the second part of the prophecy, one of them the same, which leaves how many? (laughs) 10. That's what I'm going to call the sermon, 10 Great Realities of Our Salvation. So here's what we want to do, take these 10 dimensions of salvation, and see if we can weave them together into a composite picture that would blow us away if we have eyes to see. Never leave you the same again. Number one, everything is rooted and begins in the mercy of God, especially the phrase in verse 78, Tender mercy. You know how this is translated in the King James? Anybody remember? Bowels of mercy. Intestines of mercy. What's the point of that? I mean, think of it God's intestines. I mean, think of it. Before there was a universe, there was God, only God. And he had bowels. You know what I'm talking about. It's a picture. Yeah, but what? This means the mercy of God is not mechanical. It's not merely judicial. It's not something he's constrained to do. It comes from deep down in God. This is the way reality is. He didn't become this way, right? God never became anything. He's God. He just is. He's ultimate reality. Well, what is ultimate reality like? It's like bowels of mercy. It's like emotions coming from the deepest part of you that don't have to be constrained or worked up. I think that's amazing. What is ultimate reality? So that's number one. If it didn't exist, nothing would exist. Number two, this mercy inclines him to keep his covenant or keep his promises, verse 72, 73. Now I know some of you really sharp Bible people will say, as you should, Wait a minute. It's the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the integrity of God that commits him to keep his promises and to fulfill his covenant. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But guess what? When he made that covenant with Abraham, he was a moon worshiper. He deserved nothing. And the fact that you Gentiles, you Johnny-come-lately-sinner Gentiles and me, got grafted into that covenant. We didn't deserve any of that, which means that the covenant began and the covenant is kept by mercy. Every morning, if God keeps a promise to you, it's a merciful act. Yes, it's righteous. But you should say every morning, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to breathe. I don't deserve to be a believer this morning again after 77 years of waking up a believer. Why is that? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Oh, how we should be, as Kenny prayed, a tender-hearted, humble people. Everything we have is mercy by way of the covenant and promise. Number three, To fulfill his covenant, he raises up a horn of salvation. That's Jesus. He sends his son into the world. And what does he do according to verse 77? He forgives sins. This horn is also a lamb. Remember that picture in in Revelation? Horns in this lamb. This lamb is really powerful. And he dies. That's the way he uses his power. Can you use your power that way? Die for somebody? And we get forgiveness. So mercy, covenant, Christ, forgiveness. That's why you're alive this morning. Number five, the power of God's Spirit is unleashed by forgiveness. When your sins are canceled, you're not left to yourself. The Spirit comes, right? The Holy Spirit comes. And what does he do when he comes? He takes away your blindness. Darkness to light, that's number five. Our sins get paid for. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And, and our darkness, our blindness goes away. And we have sight and life. Five and six. In fact, all our enemies, spiritual, physical, mental, Anything that opposes you will come to ruin. Just a matter of time. Some of them are coming to ruin right now. Your sins right now, they're gone. They are gone. Your diseases aren't gone. Got that? You're going to die. Every one of you in this room, if Jesus doesn't come back, going to die. For me, soon, right? That's not a problem. If it's a problem for you, come on in. It's not a problem. The shadow of death is taken care of by the horn of salvation. Sin's forgiven. Light and life provided. Number eight, and the result is peace. Peace with God. Eventually there's going to be peace among all God's people and in all the world when the unrighteousness is removed and God establishes his kingdom. There will be only peace to guide you, verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace, or Luke 2.14, which we love at Christmas. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those with whom he is pleased. He came for peace. So it's number eight. You don't get peace like that. (laughs) You get a whole redemption that works peace. And lastly, fearless service, happy service, no-regret service in righteousness and holiness all our days. Mercy, covenant, Christ, forgiveness, life, light, rescue from enemies, peace, fearless service, righteousness, holiness. Friends, this is a great salvation. It's all there to make your Christmas great. One last thing, go back with me to the beginning. When Gabriel came to Zechariah and gave him good news, that he would have a son and you should call him John, the next thing righteous, blameless Zechariah does is sin against God. That's not an accident for Luke to tell us this. He sinned, blameless, righteous Zechariah hears the greatest news of an old man with a barren wife, and he sins against God. And God spanks him. You're not going to talk. You're not going to hear for nine months. I'm cutting you off from all ordinary human communication. You're going to deal with me for nine months in your silence. Silence. We'll we'll deal with this. We'll deal with what just happened here. For nine months, we're going to deal with this. Nine months later, he has come to his senses, and a tablet is given to him. And in repentance and obedience, he writes, His name is John. It says in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the point? The point is, all that salvation that he just unleashed on the world saved him, it saved him. He didn't deserve anything. He didn't deserve to be dumb, he deserved to be dead. And He doesn't just get his tongue back, he gets the Holy Spirit washing over him so that his mouth opens, I love salvation. Don't you? Yes, you do. That's what Christmas is for, to open our eyes and open our mouths. So God's deep, deep mercy, covenant promise, mighty horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, rescue from mortal enemies of every kind, peaceful, fearless service toward a gracious God in righteousness and holiness forever. Closing, there is not a single person in this room. You listening? There is not a single person in this room who has not sinned like Zechariah, no one. The word of God has come to you in the Bible, in a sermon, on the internet, it's come to you. The way of love is made plain for this afternoon, and you have shut the book and diverted your attention to avoid that word. Not a person in this room has not done that. Right? And this text, even before we hear the song of salvation, is all about turning after nine months of silence, feeling regret, and then obeying and being totally forgiven. And not just forgiven. And may the Lord do this for you. May you walk out of here with a sense, that means I could be forgiven. Pastor John doesn't even know what I've done. No, I don't, but he does. But I could be forgiven this morning, and, and not only forgiven, I could be useful. I could be useful. My mouth, my mouth could become useful to people. I could be a blessing to somebody for the rest of my life, even though I've wasted the first 30, 40, 50 years Years. I told Kenny by an email last night, that's where I'm gonna stop. It's yours now at the table, because that's what this is about. That's what this table is about. So let's pray as we get ready to go there. Oh, Father, as we eat and as we drink, Christ, mercy, covenant, forgiveness, hope, recovery, usefulness, work it in this room, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.